Hopefully you're at John 3.22 by now. That is where we're going to be kicking off today. We are um, in our last sermon for our series, the written so that you may believe a harmony of the Gospels for this chunk of time at least. We'll pick back up because we still have a lot of work to do in those Gospels. Um, but we haven't had to do much harmonizing recently between the four different Gospel accounts um, because we've been in John's Gospel covering a chunk that the other three uh, don't speak to uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so we're making our way through this life and the works of Jesus in that and we're in John's gospel with that. So today we'll be looking not so much at Jesus, we'll still be talking a lot about Jesus, um, but at the man who played the God-ordained role of preparing the way for Jesus, that is, John the Baptist. We had seen him pop up earlier on in our series with the angel coming to his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and there's the angel told of his birth and the role he was to play in this grand scheme of God's plan for salvation for his people. This role he played fulfilled the prophecy Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says, A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. And it's actually pretty cool. All of the gospel writers make note of this. They all quote Isaiah 40, verse 3, in reference to John the Baptist. And then we see him pop up again when Jesus was being baptized, uh, which all of the gospel writers make note of as well, because John was playing the significant role of preparing the way for the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And today, we will see John the Baptist come on the scene one last time in the Apostle John's gospel, and we'll hear some of his final words that he shares with his disciples before he's actually imprisoned, um, which we will see happen later in the other gospel accounts. And what we've seen from the gospel writers is that John and his testimony was not some detail you wanted to leave out. He played an unforgettable part in the story and life of Jesus. And as we look at John the Baptist this morning, I believe we'll have the same view of him as the writers did. Not only does he fulfill his special calling from God as the messenger for the Messiah, but Jesus, or sorry, for the Messiah Jesus, but his faith and witness are an example to learn and to glean from. This morning we will read about a conversation John the Baptist has with his disciples, and we will see the faithful witness of this messenger. A man who took no pride or claim to fame in his ministry and his success but whose hope and faith remained in God alone. So let's pray, and we'll read our scripture for this morning. Father, I thank you that we're able to come together today, that we're able to, to gather and worship you, that we're able to play instruments and sing songs and lift up praises to you. For you are so good and so great, Father, your love is astounding, and I pray that as we're getting into your word this morning that you can just awaken our hearts to that. I pray, Father, that your word can just be speaking to us in whatever way you see fit, that it can convict us, that it can correct us, encourage us, rebuke us, lift us up. Father, I just pray as we're looking at John's 
discussion here with his disciples that you can just be revealing what we need to hear and then I can just be bringing you more and more glory in all that we do. We pray in your name. Amen. Um, I think the last time I had preached was before I, Remy and I had our second daughter, Zoe, and you can probably hear her crying right now. Um, but I just wanted to let you guys know uh, we love our two little girls. They're amazing. Zoe is now four months old. Charlotte will be two next month. And uh, life as parents is a wild roller coaster, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't change it for anything. Um, so let's read John 3, verses 22, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter through uh, verse 36. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, where he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized, since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, and who is with you across the Jordan, is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Sorry, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth is earthly and it speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true, for the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So the past two weeks, we were looking at Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus at night. Um, and after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, John continues on his, in his gospel account saying, after this. And this was an undisclosed amount of time later. So sometime after his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and made their way into the Judean countryside. And they spent time together, and the disciples were baptizing others. We know Jesus wasn't the one baptizing anyone because John actually clarifies that at the beginning of the next chapter in verse 2, saying, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. And the apostle John then quickly transitions from what Jesus and his disciples were up to to, the John, to John the Baptist and what he was currently doing. John was living up to his name. He was baptizing people in Anon which is a word meaning springs, and surprise, surprise, Scripture tells us that it had ample water supply to do so. What we see here is that John had not stopped his ministry of preaching a message and a baptism of repentance. He continued to move on from where we had last seen him near Bethany when he baptized Jesus. And although Jesus was now on the scene and beginning his ministry, John continued on in his and his ministry was still having success, as we see at the end of verse 23. People were still coming to him and being baptized. 
the Apostle John makes a quick note that John had not yet been thrown in prison. He makes this note for his audience because the three other gospel accounts had already been circulating and they spell out John the Baptist being arrested without any mention of this specific event that John is recording happening after Jesus' baptism. So the Apostle John clarifies this happened before his imprisonment so his audience was not confused and wondering where this all took place. So as John and his disciples were baptizing, a dispute arose between his disciples and a Jew about purification, probably relating to his baptism. We're not given the full context of the dispute that they had, but we see the result being John's disciples coming to him upset, frustrated, and most likely jealous. This sets the stage for what we'll be looking at today, the faithful witness of this messenger, John the Baptist. John has been faithfully following the call God has placed on his life, and times are now changing. More and more people are going to Jesus and his disciples. John's disciples are frustrated. John will soon be tossed into prison. So how does John, this messenger of the Messiah, respond? Takes us to our first point for today. John trusts God's sovereignty and calling. John trusts God's sovereignty and calling. I'm going to read verses 25 to 28. It says, Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that, testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. John's disciples come to him after this dispute and tell John that everyone is going to the guy that you baptized, Jesus, and they're not coming to us anymore. We see the frustration and the potential jealousy of his disciples in their hyperbole of everyone is going to him. And this is obviously not the case as they're baptizing people right there in Anon. But what it reveals is that John's disciples either forgot or missed the whole point of John's ministry, which was to point to the Messiah, going back to that Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 passage that all the gospel writers mention. But John does not forget his purpose. He responds to his disciples saying, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. John's ministry had been thriving up to this point. He was proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. People were getting baptized. There was a lot of fruit and success in his ministry. But now times were changing. More and more people were following after Jesus, and John's ministry didn't look like it used to. This could have been a disappointment to John, like it was for his disciples. John could have thrown a, a little pity party he could have complained and grumbled that Jesus was getting all the attention now. But he didn't because his faith was not in himself and in his success, but in the sovereignty and the grand plans that God had in store. John spelled it out clearly to his disciples that he was the one sent ahead of the Messiah, not the Messiah himself. This is what his purpose and calling from God was, 
to inform people, not to draw them to himself. And although the spotlight was beginning to dim on John, he trusted anew that what God had in store was far better than what he could ever accomplish. John's disciples got caught up in a worldly and prideful view of success and achievement in their dispute with this Jewish person, while John retained a heavenly and a selfless view of God's plan. So what of our own callings and giftings? How do we handle the questions and the doubts and the temptation of jealousy when our life or our passion or our calling doesn't look like what it once did? Especially if there's an aspect of competitiveness in it with someone who is now thriving. Do we grumble and complain as John's disciples did? Do we lose sight of what God's plan and purpose was? Maybe we never really even fully understood what his purpose was from the beginning. What we see in John's response to his disciples is a humble reminder that all of our callings, passions, and giftings ultimately come from God and do not originate with us. And when our focus turns from God and what he has in store to our limited view of only ourselves, we lose the joy in what God was doing in and through us. We see John make this point as his conversation with his disciples continues, which takes us to our second point. John's joy is complete in his waning ministry. John's joy is complete in his waning ministry. In verses 29 through 30, he says, He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John shares a little parable or a metaphor with his disciples about the relationship between a bride and a groom and the groom's best friend. John starts off by making it clear that the one who has the bride is the groom. Duh. The groom's friend does not have the bride, but is standing by, waiting for the groom to arrive, and the friend rejoices when he hears the groom's voice. The friend of the groom that John is referring to played an important role in wedding ceremonies in their time. This friend of the groom, this best friend, he set up and coordinated all the details of the wedding and even had the responsibility of uniting the bride and groom to begin their wedding ceremony. In waiting to unite the bride and groom, when the friend hears the voice of the groom, he rejoices knowing that he can bring the two together and that his task and joy for his friend is complete. John in no way sees himself as a rival to Jesus, but as the friend of the groom. He is preparing the way for the groom to be united with his bride. And John is not trying to seek honor for himself either. His joy is not found in trying to take the bride from the groom, but in playing the subservient role for his friend, the groom, whom he serves. This short metaphor ties in with Old Testament verbiage of Israel being God's bride, and we see the same theme carry into the New Testament with the church being the bride of Christ. 
Isaiah says in chapter 54, verses 5 and 6, Indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you, like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit, a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. God's love, care, and pursuit for his people is depicted as a husband going after his own wife. John knows and understands it is God alone who will rescue and redeem his people. He wouldn't think for a moment that his role was to be the groom or the husband rescuing the people of God. He finds joy in knowing that the groom has arrived, salvation has come, and he wants his disciples to grasp that. John is telling his disciples to take a step back and look at the historic event that is taking place right before the very eyes. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Prophets of God had spoken of the coming Messiah, the salvation that was to come. And John and his disciples are now watching and experiencing firsthand this transition from the era of the prophets to the new era of the Messiah. Instead of trying to steal or compete with Jesus' ministry, John's disciples should be either running alongside John and continuing to point people to Jesus, or just going after Jesus themselves. John didn't need them to protect whatever ministry he had. He wanted them and everyone to know that he heard the groom's voice. Jesus has arrived. The Savior of the world was dwelling and walking among them. One commentator said, John saw Jesus' increasing popularity in popularity, not as a concern, but as the fulfillment of his ministry. Far from upsetting him, it brought him great joy. Which is why John ends his short metaphor by stating, so this joy of mine is complete. John was witnessing the fulfillment of his God-given purpose. He had prepared the way for the Lord, and his joy was complete. And he ends that thought with one of the simplest and yet greatest verses. He must increase, but I must decrease. Imagine his disciples hearing those words come from his mouth. John was completely content to step back and let Jesus take center stage. And for good reason, as we all know. Once the main act has arrived, there's no need for the intro to continue on. The groom has arrived and has come for his bride the friend of the groom has fulfilled his purpose, and now he should step out of the way for the ceremony to move on. John was being a faithful witness as the messenger, pointing his disciples to the one greater than him, and joyfully accepting his, plan, his place in God's plan. Going back to our own passions, callings, and giftings, are we willing to say along with John that he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease? What John is stating is an imperative. He's saying it is necessary that Jesus increases and that I decrease. Are we willing to play the subservient role in God's bigger plan 
rather than trying to have the spotlight continually shine on ourselves? Do we see humility in our own hearts, or is there a clash of our will and God's will? May we take it to heart from John's testimony that Jesus must increase and we must decrease. May we be faithful to point others to the Savior who has come for his bride, the church, made up of redeemed sinners like you and me. And may we not get in the way of what God has in store. He must increase. We must decrease. And the last part of the chapter answers the why behind all of this, which takes us to our last point. John knew Jesus was supreme. John knew that Jesus was supreme. Reading verses 31 to 36, says, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Now, there are differing opinions as to whether this last chunk is John the Baptist continuing on in his conversation with his disciples, or if that ended at verse 30, and now it's the John the Apostle continuing on in verses 31 to 36. But either way, the point is being made of Jesus' supremacy above all else. This last section points to at least four different reasons as to why Jesus was better than anything else in this world and why John can so confidently say, he must increase, but I must decrease. The first point is, that is made is a comparison of what is heavenly versus what is earthly. In this context, the one who comes from above is referring to Jesus, and the one who is from the earth is John the Baptist and humanity in general. And the point is stated twice in this one verse that Jesus is above all. John is not taking away from his role and purpose by saying he is earthly and speaking in earthly terms. But in comparison, John wants to point everyone to Jesus, the one from heaven, God in the flesh. Jesus has authority and is sovereign over all this world. So John wants his disciples to follow him, and rightly so. Because there is no one or no thing greater than Jesus. He goes on in verses 32 through 34, making his second point of his heavenly testimony. He says, He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. He, Jesus, testifies to what he has seen and heard. As being one who is from heaven and above all, his testimony ought to be the one we listen to. The author of Hebrews speaks to this by beginning his letter with the following in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 in Hebrews. 
Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. God's plan was for prophets leading up to and including John the Baptist to speak on his behalf. And then God himself to come in the flesh to speak to us directly. What better way to get your message across than by coming in person, right? And tying this in with John's reasoning then, Jesus, being the one whom God sent, speaking God's words because he has the spirit without measure, because he's God. And there's a cool little Trinitarian picture right there, by the way, with the Father, Son, and the Spirit all playing a role. And yet even with all this, being from heaven, being sent by God, speaking God's word, and full of the Spirit without limit, people still do not accept his testimony. As the Apostle John said at the beginning of his gospel, in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John wants not only his disciples, but everyone to see that Jesus' testimony is right and true. And the one who does accept his testimony, as it says in verse 33, has affirmed that God is true. Jesus and God the Father's testimony and word are 100% harmonious, yet so many reject it. John wants us to see the truth, value, and supremacy that Jesus speaks and has So in verse 35, he states that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Once again, making his case even stronger as to why Jesus is supreme. Not only is he from heaven and above all, and testifies the words of God, being full of spirit, but all things have been given to him. What is being presented and declared in these verses is the divinity of Christ. He and the Father are one as Jesus himself says later on in John's gospel, in chapter 10, verse 30. John's whole point as to why he must decrease and Jesus must increase becomes undeniably clear. Jesus is God in the flesh. And he ends this section with the final point that Jesus is the source of eternal life, both now and forever. Verse 36 says, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus is supreme because he is from heaven, testifies as God himself, has all things in his hands, and is the source of eternal life. This is why he must increase and we must decrease. God has come to rescue and redeem his people as a husband going after his wife. And we must not detract or take away from that. The end of this passage comes with a warning as well. If you reject the son, if you do not believe his testimony, you will not see life but face the wrath of God. Which is quite terrifying to hear. 
but it is where all humanity stands apart from Jesus. Without his sacrificial death on the cross and his raising to new life, there was no hope for us as sinful and selfish people before a righteous, just, and holy God. But as Brandon shared last week from John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Not only did Jesus come to testify, he came to die. For you and for me. That we might have everlasting life from now into eternity. by simply believing in him. I pray that you take John's words to heart this morning. May you trust in God's sovereignty and calling, even if it's not going the way you might desire. May your joy be complete, not in your own works, but in God's work in and through you. And may you know Jesus is supreme far better than anything else this world has to offer. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we thank you that you as the groom have come. You have rescued your people. You have brought back your, your wayward bride. Father, we thank you for the life and example of John the Baptist who could have took pride in all of his own achievements and whatnot, but he instead pointed to you and said, you must increase and he must decrease because he knew you were the answer, the joy, the hope. You are everything. Father, I pray just for our own hearts as we wrestle with our own desires and passions and callings and how all that plays out, Lord, may we be quick to say you must increase and we must decrease. Father, help us see areas in our lives where we are not making room for you or not allowing you to, to work and to continue reaching to the lost sheep. Father, I pray that we can have humble hearts and can desire to bring you glory above all else. I pray in your name. Amen.